There may be some uh, latecomers, but I think we should start. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. It is a good afternoon, after all. Um, one thing the weather has done, I think, has really brought out the people who have a real adventurous spirit, and I appreciate that. I mean, after all, we all could be home doing our taxes. This is the penultimate uh, Spencer Trask Lecture of the Academic Year. It's co-sponsored by the Department of Rare Books and Special Collections. I'm John Delaney, Curator of Historic Maps in that department. And we have a movable feast, really, for you this afternoon. Um, after the completion of this program in the Friend Center, we're going to, I was going to say walk down or mosey down to Firestone. Maybe we'll float down this afternoon or be blown. But we're going down to an opening reception for an exhibition entitled uh, To the Mountains of the Moon, Mapping African Exploration, 1541-1880. The exhibition provides a further opportunity for you to vicariously experience exploring and adventuring in Africa, following the expeditions of over two dozen of the most important and historically significant explorers and travelers of the African continent. At the library, our speaker will be signing copies of his book on the Nile. You can also purchase our color illustrated map catalog, and there will be some light refreshments. So I hope uh, that will entice many of you to join us uh, down the block. Many thanks are necessary at a time like this. I'm grateful to the University's Committee on Public Lectures and the Friends of the Princeton University Library for making this lecture possible. For the exhibition, I would like to thank Gretchen Oberfrank for improving my text, and Ted Stanley and Scott Husby from the Library's Preservation Office for attending to the maps and the books. Uh, all of them got a complete physical, and I really can say that they're in better shape than they were after a couple hundred years of uh, existence. Uh, Wang Shawa, a Princeton's GIS librarian, helped me as always with scanning and digitizing matters dealing with maps. And I'm particularly grateful to John Waleko for his vision of perfection as it unfolded in our installation. Uh, it's really a stellar presentation, and I hope you get to see it this afternoon or in the next six months while it's up. All right. Um, in his last published essay, uh, which appeared in the National Geographic several months before he died in 1924. English novelist Joseph Conrad mused about explorers and maps and Africa. He had a particular uh, interest for Africa and the Congo River, as those of you who have read Heart of Darkness can appreciate. Specifically about the incomplete 19th century map of Africa, which had intrigued him in his youth, he wrote, my imagination could depict to itself there worthy, adventurous, and devoted men, i.e. the explorers, nibbling at the edges, attacking from north and south and east and west, conquering a bit of truth here and a bit of truth there, and sometimes swallowed up by the mystery their hearts were so persistently set on unveiling. There are still such men. Uh, I would suggest to you that our speaker is one of those worthy, adventurous, devoted men who is continuing and linking with that African exploratory tradition. Pasquale Scuturo, um, geophysicist and adventurer, 
is one of the most successful and accomplished uh, mountain and river expedition leaders in the world and has been exploring the far reaches of the planet for over 25 years. He is founder and president of Exploration Specialists, an international geophysical and exploration company. For the last 26 years, he has managed geophysical exploration and development projects in many of the most remote, dangerous, and politically, uh, technically challenging areas of uh, the Earth and has explored throughout North and South America, Africa, and the former Soviet Union. For over 20 years, Pasquale has been extremely active in high-altitude mountaineering and has been the leader of numerous expeditions to major mountains worldwide, including three expeditions to Mount Everest. In 1998, he reached the mountain summit, and in 2001, he conceived, organized, and led the National Federation of the Blind Everest Expedition, in which blind climber Eric Weinheimer reached the summit. Uh, Eric was here a couple of years ago, actually, talking about that expedition uh, in a lecture like this. Pasquale has multiple descents of major world-class rivers, including the Biobio in Chile, rivers throughout North America, and the Omo and Zambezi in Africa. From November 2003 to April 2004, he organized and led the historic 114-day first, Nile First Descent Expedition, the first complete descent of the Blue Nile and Nile River from its source high in the mountains of Ethiopia um, to the Mediterranean Sea, which is a distance of over 3,000 miles. And I'm pleased to say that some of the original maps from that expedition bearing his field annotations are in the Firestone exhibition, and you can see them. He has filmed rafting and uh, mountaineering projects for ESPN, PBS, Discovery, National Geographic Channel, Orbit, Orbita Max. Um, his most recent IMAX uh, movie came out last month and uh, should be available more widely soon. Uh, it's about climbing in the Alps. Please join me in giving a warm welcome to Pasquale Scatoro. Can everyone hear me okay? I guess this is working too. How about now? Can you hear me? Without the microphone or is the microphone better? I don't think the mic's on. The mic's not on? How about now? How about now? Yeah. There you go. Got to move this thing up. Technology. Can you hear me all right now? Yeah. Okay, great. Um, first of all, I want to thank John Delaney um, for inviting me to speak tonight. Um, I travel most of the time now, either through work or through expeditions, and I don't give many talks anymore after the, uh, the Nile IMAX film came out. But John was in Denver, where I live, and he was buying some maps, some African maps, and he invited me to lunch, and we started talking. And he just loved Africa so much. And it was such a fond information on Africa that I said, oh, i got to come. It would be great, because I knew he had this African maps uh, uh, ex exhibition. And after seeing what he put together at the Firestone, Firestone Center, right, library, um, I was 
shocked, happily shocked. It's really a beautiful um, exhibition. You know, I love Africa, and I've kind of studied, read everything I can, and it's just wonderful to see all the original maps, original books, and descriptions of all these explorers and their maps on the wall, and I invite you to go look at it because it's truly one of the best in the world, I think. I, I just don't know of any place else that's done, uh, anyone else that's done such a good job of, of, of describing the history of Africa through its exploration maps from the beginning to the end, so I invite you to go to it. Um, you know, when we were talking, when he was first, uh, I was sitting there talking, um, something came to my mind about exploration in, in our conversations earlier, and one of them is, um, the question most people ask me is what I, uh, what I wished most in my career, you know, oil and gas and exploration and stuff like that, and what I wished most in my career, I wished I would have been born a hundred years before I was born. And to be born before GPS, satellite, the airplane, the telephone, and things like that, to be able to explore it Africa ways the earlier explorers have done it, just go out in the middle of the wilderness with a half-point map and just see what's out there. Unfortunately, we can't do that much anymore. Um, if you ignore the computer, maybe you can get a few places away, but the whole world's been mapped. But that doesn't mean there's not a lot of uh, exploration and adventure out there. And I think when I look at the Nile and what I did on the Nile River in 2003, 2004, and the Zambezi, the other rivers, I think what, we, what, what I try to keep telling people to do is that although the world's been mapped, although there's 10 satellite images of every spot of the world on the Internet and stuff, there's still a lot of adventure out there and a lot of things to explore. And like we were saying, just because there's a map doesn't mean you know what's really there. Too often I've had a map of an area and I've gone, actually gone to the area and it's nothing like the map. And so that's what I found on the Nile and I'll try to, I'll just try to show you that tonight. Now, I have quite a few slides. I have 90 slides, but they go real quickly. Generally, for uh, bigger groups, uh, we have a question-answer service a a period afterwards, but since it's a fairly small group in a nice, small um, venue, if you have a question during the talk, during, uh, during the slideshow, why don't you just, like, yell it out? Just, and because it's such a small group that it's easier to do that, because then... For two reasons. One is it keeps the, the conversation going of, of what I'm working on, and also you don't forget about the, uh, the, uh, the question early on. It'll take about an hour, and then we can go over to the Firestone Library. And what I'm going to do today is I'm going to concentrate entirely on four rivers in Africa, three in Ethiopia, Sudan, Kenya, and then one in Zambia. And the three rivers, the reason I picked these three rivers over, over all the other rivers, Niger and the Congo, stuff like that, is because their four rivers have something in common, is that these four rivers either have major dams being built on them or will have major hydropower projects built on them. Every single river will not exist in its current form in 10 years. They will be rivers that you can, we can only look at, remember, in photographs. Um, and as we go through all the slides, I'll show you where they're going to build the dams and the size of these dams. Um, Africa's changing like everywhere else in the world. Um, again, another conversation John and I have had many times is, is the world changing so fast that our children and our grandchildren, and I have five grandchildren, will our grandchildren not know what the world's like in their lives? And so that's what's so valuable about, I think, photographs and, and these type of series. So we're going to start. Um, I first went to Africa in the, the 80s. And I went there as a geophysicist exploring for energy, oil, and gas. 
in the Ogaden Basin of Ethiopia and Somalia. And at the time, I went from having never really been in Africa much to going right into the boiling water. And you can imagine what Ethiopia and Somalia were like in the late 80s, early 90s. It was crazy. And from there, I fell in love with the continent so that I went back time and time again. And I it got to be the point where I just spent almost all my time there. I've run many rivers in Africa. I've run five first descents of rivers. Um, I'm planning on going back there, running another major river in, in August, and I'd like to run another bit of White Nile later on. So to begin with, this is a photograph that I bet you can't see the raft at it. Can everybody look at the upper right-hand corner of the, photo of the slide? Let me turn this down. Yeah, I'm going to do the lighting. Do this here. How's, how's that? See the upper right-hand corner? That's a 16, that little yellow dot's a 16-foot whitewater raft. This is like I was trying to explain. This is Tissisot Falls, 153 feet, the second largest waterfall in Africa after Victoria Falls. Now, who here in this entire audience has ever even heard of Tissisot Falls? You happen to be there or get one person? That's amazing. You're the first person I think I've ever met. <laughs> the fact is, is this is what Africa has to offer. It's a huge world-class waterfall. No one even knows about it. This waterfall, as magnificent it is, is now gone. Two years ago, the Ethiopian government, with grants from the Chinese, built a diversion dam, and they dammed, diverted all of this water through a hydropower project. This river only, this river only flows over the waterfalls during the rainy season for about a month. The rest of the time, it's diverted. And it's really a shame because it's one of the magnificent views of the world. And this is, again, one of the, one of the reasons, when I look back on our, our pictures, one of, the, one of the reasons I get so sad about what's happening in a lot of the... Uh, a lot of the African continent. Okay, the rivers of Africa. I'll be discussing four rivers in Africa. And of the rivers in Africa, I'm going to concentrate on... Did I set my pointer? Okay, that's right. I'm going to be concentrating on three rivers up here in Ethiopia in the Horn of Africa, and one river in Zambia, the Zambezi. In Ethiopia, the main rivers I want to talk about are the Blue Nile going into the White Nile, and again, Tissisot Falls is right there, the Takaze, which is the largest tributary to the Nile outside the White Nile and Blue Nile that no one knows about, going into Adbara right here on the White Nile, the Omo River in southwestern Ethiopia, which is the source of Lake Turkana those three rivers. All three rivers, I've run the first descent of the Takaze in 96, did the first descent of the Blue Nile in 2003, and I did the first full descent of the Omo all the way down to Lake Turkana in October, November of last year. Um, I first, like I said, I first went to the Horn of Africa in, 19, in the early 19, or mid-1980s and worked through there through the early, uh, early 90s. At that time, it was a place that was completely lawless, well, still is lawless in Somalia. And that's where I learned to become fairly fearless in traveling through Africa. During the entire period of time, I couldn't leave. There was no government, so I had an armed, a couple armed troops with me most of the time. I learned after a few years I didn't need these guys, so I got rid of my armed troops, and I learned to speak the local language 
in this area, his time was either Somali or Amharic, the Haida language of Ethiopia. And then I went ahead and traveled by myself. But what it did teach me was how beautiful Africa was and how much there was to explore in the area. The Omo River, located here in southwestern Ethiopia, is the source of Lake Turkana. And it's probably one of the most um, uh, unknown rivers of Ethiopia. But when you see the photos, it's one of the most known rivers of Ethiopia. It starts in the highlands of Ethiopia below Addis Ababa. It starts as the Gibe River, flows south through the Ethiopian highlands, dropping real steeply for about 7,000 feet down to sea level. It drops into the rift sequence with Lake Turkana and then becomes a large river that, source, that finally goes into Lake Turkana. And of course, Lake Turkana has no outlet. So in Lake Turkana, um, the river dies. Now, Lake Turkana and the Lower Omo River are unique because they have the largest concentration of crocodiles in the world. Um, in one area in Lake Turkana, just quickly, one area in Lake Turkana, there's a small volcano-sized island in Lake Turkana that's a quarter mile wide, has 26,000 crocodiles on it. So that's how many crocodiles are in Lake Turkana. Um, the Omo starts in the southwest Ethiopian highlands. We're at about 8,000 feet right now. And you can, see the, uh, you can see the size of the river. It's a big flowing river. The team that went on the Omo expedition with me was a typical team. I'm not a commercial guide. I do not have a commercial uh, rafting, mountaineering, or climbing company. I simply invite friends, usually. I've been doing this for about 20 years. My friends on this expedition include a series of people, uh, people I've worked with, some young boaters, um, lawyers, uh, vets, physicians, writers. This fellow here is an outside, a writer with Outside Magazine, Michael McRae. In the June issue of Outside, the June or July issue of Outside Magazine, we're going to have the cover of this expedition uh, along with the expedition, what happened at it, and a, a little bit of a brief description of the other expeditions I've done. So if you get Outside Magazine, you'll see all these people in that um, version of the magazine. Um, in addition, we had our local Ethiopian guides, or not guides, but helpers. I was the actual guide. So this would be the typical makeup of one of our expeditions. The expedition covered 1,000 kilometers, lasted 35 days, and covered every inch of the Omo River. We were completely unsupported, completely private, and everyone helped and did the, did the work. And that's generally how I lead, how I lead river expeditions. Um, we did this expedition and, yeah. Oh, those, just, those three boys. Generally, we would get to camp in Ethiopia. There's quite a few people. Generally, we'd get to camp, and kids would show up. Local tribal kids would show up. Invariably, we'd go ahead and hire them to collect firewood for us and wash dishes and things like that. And so we did, that. we did that fairly commonly. Of course, when the kids are with you and you have a camera out, you've got to have them in the photograph because kids love taking photographs. So that's what the, that's what the children were. Um, in a typical expedition like this down a river, being so remote, we would generally use inflatable boats that we either had in the African continent or I could source locally, although I have brought equipment over with me. Um, these four boats are, uh, I got from a friend of mine who has a small rafting company, Remote Rivers. We cleaned them up, fixed the holes in them. Um, you know, they're full of holes when we got them because they're stored with the rats in Addis Ababa. And what we would do is we'd put them on the water. And as you can see, if you've ever done a big Grand Canyon River trip, this is a sorry-looking fleet. But that said, it floats. And short of a crocodile bite or hippo bite, we usually get to the ends of the rivers with these boats. Of course, we did have a few blowouts, few punctures that we had to lay over a few days and patch. But generally, this fleet, this fleet made, the, made the trip. Um, 
this is a picture of me rowing through one of the rapids, and you can see the river is a fairly wide river. Um, it's full of crocodiles, full of hippos, and it's a very beautiful river, although it drops a lot. During the entire length of 1,000 kilometers, we probably had five to 600 class three rapids, class two and class three rapids, including several class four rapids. So although we think of these rivers as being jungle rivers, most African rivers have fairly steep gradients and have quite a few rapids along with the hippos and the crocodiles. The typical picture of the Omo going south, uh, we had hundreds of these small canyons like this where the river would be choked between these volcanic uh, walls uh, hundreds of feet high. The walls would be full of colobus monkeys, baboons, leopard. We got a leopard sighting uh, sitting on a rock in, in the side of the river one day. And it was very typical to have this type of scenery along the river. If you were sitting in one of the boats, this is what you would see on a typical day. We'd be in the front going through a small class one riffle with the volcanic uh, shoreline whizzing by. There were trees down by the river, but the, the shores of the river were just spectacular, full of acacia trees, tall green grass. Um, again, if you looked real carefully, you could see there's quite a bit of wildlife down in here. Ethiopia has almost 80 million people. It's a little bit bigger than the size of Texas. So you can imagine how populated the country is. It's overpopulated. That said, the, the crazy thing about Ethiopia is that virtually no one lives along the river corridors. The Blue Nile goes almost 700 kilometers through the country of, I'm sorry, 800 kilometers through the country of Ethiopia. Not a single person lives along the Blue Nile in Ethiopia. There's not a village, a house, or a person that lives on same as the Omo, for the first 500 kilometers of the Omo, we did not see a single soul living along the banks of the Omo, although we occasionally ran into a person um, you know, bringing cattle, sheep, or goats down to the river. The reason they don't live there is because of the tsetse flies and the malaria, mostly, and the fact it's, it's very rough and there's a lot of crocodiles in the water. The Omo has more crocodiles, still has more crocodiles, I think, than any river in the world. Um, this is a crocodile we saw on the shore. It's a very typical, it's probably a 12, 10, 11, 12 foot croc. It's a Nile croc, one of the most dangerous crocs in the world, in Africa. Um, they're really fast. We've had a lot of encounters with them, and we're very cautious when we're on rivers like this to make sure no one goes swimming. We don't allow people to swim, or if we flip a boat in a rapid, we make sure that we're there to pick them up before they get to the eddies where the crocodiles are hanging out. Um, there are many hippo. Um, the amazing thing about the Omo is two minutes from the put-in, at the put-in actually, at the, when we were actually putting our boats in and rigging our boats, there were some, some hippos in the pool right there. And all the way down the river, there were large um, uh, pods of hippo. Actually, we call them, there's a new term they use, bloats of hippo. <laughs> so we, bloats of hippo that we, we saw along the river. Now, all that's about to change. Ethiopian government has contracted with the Chinese and the Italian, a bunch of Italian development firms. And the Omo, undammed throughout history, is now being dammed by three of the largest dams in our, on the earth. They're planning on building a 280 meter tall dam. That's 900 feet in one of these canyons that will dam a large part of the Omo. And it'll certainly take out all these pods of hippos and most of the crocs because once people start living along the shoreline, the hippo can't survive. In addition, they're building a 26-mile, 300-kilometer, or 300-meter, 300 300-foot-tall 
26-mile diversion dam upriver of that and another dam further up that will supply almost 2,000 megawatts of power to East Africa. So a lot of these African animals will be gone. As we get lower on the Omo, you'll see photos that you guys all recognize this. I mean, who hasn't heard of the lip plate people? The Morsi. Ethiopia has some of the most fantastic tribes in the world, and a lot of people don't know about that. As we go down the river and we leave the highlands and the river becomes a slower, muddier um, river, we start picking up uh, river banks where you, people can actually farm. And we start passing the Bodhi, the Bumi um, tribes that are scarred, do scarification and, and uh, tattooing. And then we hit the Morsi tribe further down. The Morsi tribe are characterized by lip plates and ear plates, um, body scarification. And there are many, many Morsi along the river. And this is a very typical scene of a Morsi woman. Um, Fifteen years ago, when I first did this river, the upper stretch of the river only, um, there had been no tourists here probably ever. And we would, they would approach us, and the people would go ahead and really be surprised to see boaters. Nowadays, I guess there have been enough people come in. Um, the country's become more stable that they've actually seen Westerners before, although it's still fairly remote, and you can still meet and see tribes that have seen very few Westerners. This is a very typical picture. There are many more sea along the tribes. There are many villages like this, especially if you're willing to get out of the river and then trek inland. Uh, the people, only people down here that use the river are the, a few Karo people. They are totally naked out here. Contra you know, I keep thinking there's sooner or later these people have to put clothes on. But they seem to be resisting that. And this is very typical of the Bodhi, the Bumi, the Morsi, and the Karo. When they get near the riverbanks, they, they generally are naked. It's very hot and humid down here, and they generally have dugout canoes that they use to get across the river and to do their farming. As a legacy of the Cold War and wars previous, there are a lot of weapons in the area. Um, every time a, a, a group goes through, whether it's the uh, Arabs going through and back or as a result of the Cold War, the Ethiopians, the Somalis, um, you'll see a lot of weapons, um, either AK-47s, Russian weapons, Soviet weapons, or American weapons. There's a lot of M16s, M1s, M14s down there. So it's something you have to get used to there. Every time a man comes out of the bush, they no longer have spears, but they have an AK. And so uh, in an area that has no police, no army uh, presence or government presence, it's a very, um, at first, a very disturbing feature, but you just learn to get used to it, and you realize that the guns are really no more an extension of their of these people manhood, just like a spear was 100 years ago. So you lose a lot of that fear. Now, that being said, we're very cautious because there are, since there is no government in the area, especially in the bottom part of the Elmo, it means anything that happens, we can't get much help in the area. So we're fairly careful on, on, on when we enter villages and uh, taking photographs and things like that because we want to make sure there's no misunderstandings. Um, this is a Nyongatom um, uh, man with his gun. Uh, the interesting thing about the Nyangatom is they're some of the richest people in the Horn of Africa. The reason being is they have cattle. And the Nyangatom stretch from southwestern Ethiopia all the way into northern Kenya and then stretch into Sudan, into the extreme southeastern Sudan. And the thing that's characterized by the Nyangatom is the fact that they know no government. The area is actually not part of Ethiopia, Sudan, or Kenya. It's considered ungoverned at this time. There are no militias down there. There are no police forces, army, or anything else. And these people like it that way. They don't recognize any of the governments. It's probably one of the last places in the world that they recognize no central form of government. 
They pay no taxes. They have no IDs. They have no passports. They are just Neongatong. And so as you go into these villages, you have to be invited in. But it's what a tremendous experience because you go into these villages and there's still, this is one of the last places in the world, there's still no sign or evidence of Western culture or civilization other than the gun on this guy's shoulder. And it's just an amazing experience. Um, as you go into the villages, this is not made up. This is an actual um, dance. They'll, they'll have uh, every, almost every day the young girls get together in the evening and they do dances and they're kind of courtship dances where they'll all get together and they'll start dancing and they'll do this all through the night. And so it's not uncommon for us at evening, you know, after dinner, 8, 9 o'clock at night, you can hear the different villages, um, the, the dances from the different villages and we'll leave our camp and we'll walk inland and go to the villages and we'll go ahead and experience the local uh, Neongaton women. Um, they'll be dancing all night. After a few days, they don't even really know you're there, so you can actually kind of blend into the villages, and you can uh, become like non-tourists, which Will is the, the way. Will the building of dams displace these villages? Pardon? Will the building of dams? Absolutely, absolutely. Not only the building dams, they're building bridges. Um, for some reason, um, the Ethiopian government wants to come out here and build a, a, a four-lane bridge. They're spending $28 million U.S. to build this bridge into nowhere. And the only thing I can think is they just have development money and they need to spend it. But they're, they're building this bridge, and the, the theory is that they're going to try to pave a road down into this area to be able to start building big farms in the area. So this area, if you want to go to Africa and see this, the Neongatong tribal areas, things like that, I recommend you go in the next five years. Because after five years, this will be no more. It'll be gone, this area. Um, again, the tribes, this is, um, has anybody heard of Angela Fisher, Carol Beckwith and Angela Fisher, the photographers with the, they've done a lot of uh, photo books in Africa, Southern Africa on the, the last remaining tribal areas in Africa, and they consider this to be the purest tribal area left in all of Africa is in this area, and I agree with them. It's the most untouched tribal area I've seen. And that said, they're not poor people. I consider these people to be the richest people in Africa. Their cattle they have are tremendous. And they do trade. They trade with Tur Turkana peoples in northern Kenya, and they're very rich. I asked one lady. I wanted to uh, get one of these things right here. That's set up. And I don't know if you saw the previous picture, the nice, the beautiful uh, leather skirt setups they had. And I asked her, I said, I'd like to buy one, just buy the necklaces and the skirts, because I like to take them back, and I, I have a nice collection at home. And she wouldn't sell it. And her, her mother um, said, I can't sell it. So her mother came to me. The girl went home. They brought her mother back later. And the mother said, I won't, we're not going to sell it. And I finally asked her how much. She would just want you know, 500 burr, 1,000 burr, 5,000 burr, which is a lot. That's $500 US. She said, no, but I'll take three cattle and four goats. Well, I figured what three cattle and four goats were worth because these people sell cattle to, uh, on the world market, basically. They go through northern Kenya. They go to Middle East. It was worth $1,000 US. She wouldn't sell it for anything less. They could care less. They don't use money. There's no place to spend money down there. So that's the type of uh, situation in this area that's just amazing. And that's why, uh, uh, again, if you want to go to an area I feel to be one of the last remaining truly cultural, unique areas in the world, this is it. What are the bees made of? The beads are, uh, they come from Kenya. 
They're all, they come from Kenya. They're brought up through the Turkana areas. They're either plastic or they're made of shell. There's a lot of shells. If you look see the, around the girl on the left, these are shells, cowrie shells, the little shells, the little cowrie shells. And then these are beads. A lot of them are plastic beads. You know, they've been, or they're the heavy plastic. Um, the heavy plastic beads, believe it or not, have been coming in through Africa for a long time, 50, 60 years. And if you go into the, even a lot of the uh, area in Kenya, the Maasai, people like that, those are, those are all plastic beads too. They've been coming in through a long, for a long time. And then, of course, then the, the, all this is all, these are all uh, really tightly woven beads up on top. But it's fantastic. It's just beyond comprehension how cool this place is. The thing about the Omo is it, it's just the scenery is just spectacular. This is a typical waterfall along the Omo. We have to hike. It's probably a quarter mile back off the river. So we'll pull back, we'll go back, we'll go swimming. But this is Bruce's Falls. It's a very big waterfall. And uh, we'd go back there and we'd, we'd, uh, we'd swim in waterfalls like this. We did have sort of a doctor along the trip. We had a friend of mine, Skip, who was a veterinary doctor from Colorado. But he's a good doctor. He's able to stitch. He stitched me up. He stitched a few other people up on the expedition. But this is the type of uh, thing we would do. We'd come along. Uh, a Nyongatom woman would bring her baby over. And her baby obviously is suffering, um, severely hurt, her baby. And so we'd give the baby, we'd give the baby some antibiotics and help take care of the baby. A lot of it's um, the woman, mother just really doesn't know how to take care of the baby that well. And so we'd help take care of the baby. You know, you only do a little bit. You know, when you come by as a, on an expedition like that, the people come down to the village you go to, you, you know, give them your leftover food and you befriend them and you give them a few, you know, a little bit of help and you just leave. You have no choice. But a situation like this doesn't take much or many antibiotics to help this baby through. Um, as we got down towards the end, the river got slower and slower and slower, and we had our inflatable rafts. One thing, we came to the last or the first village on the river um, was Omorate, which is where they're going to build this bridge. The government's bulldozed the road into it. And we left our inflatables there, and there was a boat, uh, a local hard-shell boat. And rather than risk not being able to get back to Lake Turkana, because we wanted to go all the way into Lake Turkana, we didn't just want to go to the last village, we left our rafts and rented this little powerboat. We took off, and we went the last 38 kilometers into Lake Turkana. And Lake Turkana at the end was just absolutely spectacular, like everything in the world, everything in Africa. The sunsets are wonderful. And uh, at the end of this expedition, this is just last year, we had gone 1,001 kilometers along the Omo, all the way from the Gibe Bridge, the beginning of the actual Omo River, all the way down into Lake Turkana. We actually went two or three kilometers into Lake Turkana to make sure we were there, and we turned around and went back. So the entire expedition was 35 days, and uh, it was just a wonderful experience. And like all African rivers, the thing you remember most are the sunsets. And Africa, if you've been to Africa, and I assume a few people here have, you just know that, that Africa is just a wonderful place. to uh, The hot, hot days are always followed by nice, cool, beautiful golden sunsets, perfect to drink a gin and tonic and a warm beer. If you're on a river and then you go ahead and you just enjoy, you enjoy the night. And that's what makes African rivers so special. The Zambezi is a special river, um, mainly because most, a lot of people here have heard of the Zambezi. Um, the Zambezi um, is big in African history. It was uh, Livingston probably has done the most thorough exploration of Zambezi. He was the uh, discoverer, if you want to call it, of Victoria Falls, named Victoria Falls. 
And um, it was thought originally that the Zambezi was going to be the savior of Southern Africa. It was thought that a waterway existed all the way up the Zambezi into Southern Africa. Well, it didn't take long for people to realize they could, couldn't get very far up the Zambezi at all, mainly because it was blocked by a series of canyons, gorges, and rapids starting all the way down in Mozambique. Now, a lot of those rapids are gone. They're submerged by two very large dams, Lake Kariba, right here, with the Kariba Dam, and starting over here, Cahorabasa in Mozambique by the Cahorabasa Dam. Um, they were built in the 60s as the savior of Southern Africa. Obviously, they've not been the savior of Southern Africa. Those countries are some of the most devastated countries in Africa. But they are now, the Chinese are now in both Mozambique and Zambia. I don't want to get on the Chinese. Excuse me if, you know, if I don't want to mean that. It's just that China is the developer of Africa right now. And, and I, I apologize if I'm doing that. I guess the gripe, the main thing you'll hear of this over and over again is traditionally in the Western world, you know, we have, uh, through the World Bank, most developments have been done through the World Bank. And it's been done with a certain amount of transparency and or control over how the money's been spent. What's happening in Africa now is there is no more control or transparency how the money's spent. You know, we have foreign, foreign uh, powers coming into Africa now, and they're building these huge projects. There is no transparency. There are no environmental assessments done. It's done with a great amount of um, buying off of, of power of, uh, of permissions to build a lot of these projects, and I think a lot of them are ill thought out. But there's two new dam projects going in. One of them's right here. Uh, one of, I'm sorry, one of them is right here, the Batoka Gorge Dam, which will dam the Zambezi all the way from the lower Batoka Gorge all the way up into Victoria Falls. There's one in the middle Zambezi between Lake Kariba and, and Cahorabasa, and there's one below Cahorabasa that will dam, uh, what is a 1,000 megawatt project that will dam the uh, Zambezi all the way back up into um, uh, Cahorabasa. In addition, Victoria Falls, who here has been to Victoria Falls? In addition, Victoria Falls, um, if you've been aware, uh, Zam the Zambezi side or Zimbabwe side of Victoria Falls is um, a, f a disaster area with the current Zimbabwean government. It's no one goes there. Um, there's been no tourism there for a few years. So the tourism has all been relocated over the Zambian side, which was a disaster area 15 years ago. So they've kind of swapped reputations. Yeah, what's just been approved by, uh, tentatively approved by the Zambian government is a new development, a two huge uh, international hotel development, golf course, and 450 condominiums at Victoria Falls. So um, they're hoping that they can stave that off because that's, again, it's the constant pressure and that pressure of outside influence in Africa to build these huge mega projects in Africa that really are going to change the face of Africa and really, as far as I'm concerned, not help local Africans. So with that in mind, we're going to take you down a trip of the Zambezi River. Now, who here has done the Zambezi? Done the Zambezi one day, one week. The Zambezi was first run in 1981 by Richard Bangs, my partner, did the first descent of the Zambezi. Uh, he flipped in rapid one of the Zambezi on the first day, 100 yards into the river trip. And that rep, that's the reputation that the Zambezi has. Now, Victoria Falls, if you've been to Victoria Falls, is a fantastic place on the planet Earth. There's nothing more can be said about it. It's just unbelievable, whether it's low water or high water. It's truly a great experience. And what you do in, uh, when you do a river trip, and uh, at least when we did it, uh, 
when I did it on the Zambezi, is you'd actually take the boats down, you'd rope them down, go down the Zambian side, and then if the water was low enough, we could actually row the boats back under Victoria Falls, up under the falls, get out of the boats, and actually take a shower at the bottom of Victoria Falls. <laughs> Have lunch, and then take off down the river. And the Zambezi is just one of the wonderful experiences. It's a huge carved, carved canyon in the basalt, the African basalt plateau here. It's hundreds of feet deep. It's full of the biggest whitewater rapids on Earth, one right after the other. The rapids are so big, in fact, that some of them we have to portage because we don't consider them safe. And the, even the portages are exciting. You pick up at the edge of the rapid, you generally have to put back in at the base of the rapid. The, um, the rapids are huge. They're all class four, truly class four or five rapids. The water being warm uh, means that it's not cold water. So if you swim, it's not the worst thing in the world. Um, if you've never done the Zambezi, you almost surely are going to flip a boat. And when you flip a boat, first thing you think of is that there's crocodiles in this water. But fortunately, there are only three, small crocs, and only three, four, five foot crocs. So you can usually stay them off. But it's just a fantastic trip. And a lot of people do. Uh, it's gone from... It's gone from being, uh, we've done the first descent in 1981, and who would ever have thought that now, nowadays, upwards of 50,000 people a year are going down the Zambezi. It's considered one of the largest, absolutely the, the, the highest volume in terms of tourism, river running in Africa. In addition, nowadays, they have uh, paragliding and hang gliding and bungee jumping and you know, all this stuff is at Victoria Falls. So it's gone from being a fairly quiet area to a very... Uh, touristed area, all in, all in uh, 20 years. But as you can see, the river is just fantastic. It's huge white water. You can take a 16-foot raft, you go down these huge rapids, and you just keep thinking, there's no way this boat's going over. And invariably, the boats will flip on this river every single time. And so this is Rapid 17 on the Zambezi. Um, I have not flipped in this river yet. I have not flipped, but everybody else I know has, and obviously I've been able to take a lot of photographs of people flipping their boats. Um, unfortunately, the river, like everything else, um, 50,000 people or no 50,000 people a year going down this thing, they're bound and determined to produce hydropower in this thing. So there's a, uh, they're trying to re resurrect the Patoka Gorge Dam. When we were there, they were actually um, drilling and blowing up parts of the rock to try to check the, um, the integrity of the, of the rock to be able to determine where to put this dam. And so uh, if you want to go draft the Zambezi River, probably the greatest one-day or seven-day river trip on Earth, I would recommend you go within the next few years because you may not be able to go after that. But like every African river, the sunsets are fantastic. Every day it's hot, hot, hot during the day. In the evening it starts to cool down, and the first thing that comes out is the warm beer or the gin and tonic. And then you have all evening to be able to look at the sunset and the stars in Africa, which are just tremendous. The Takaze River is a river, I guarantee you, no one has heard of here. Um, believe it or not, it's a river that is very large in African history, especially Eastern African history, is written up more than you think of, and is the source, the main tributary to the Adbara River, which uh, joins the Nile in Adbara, Egypt, I'm sorry, Adbara, Sudan, and is uh, provides 11% of the water for the Nile that reaches Alexandria in Egypt. And no one virtually knows about it. That's because it's tucked in the northern part of the country, one of the most remote areas in the world. And it's located here in the 
uh, the Simeon Mountains are located right here, and it starts in a town called Lalibela, an ancient town called Lalibela. It flows north around 14,000-foot Ras Dashan into Sudan, and then joins the White Nile. I'm sorry, it joins the main Nile here in Adbara, Sudan. Um, this is one of those things that's so pleasant, an experience that you can't, I can't even describe it. I had the maps of the area, the old 60s maps made by the Americans and Ethiopians um, during the 60s in Ethiopia. And it showed a river on these maps, but that's all it showed. And so, you know, when we're planning on doing a first descent of this river, we made a, a, a Turner Television movie in uh, 1996 here. I didn't know what to expect. And this is probably one of the greatest um, experiences of my life was discovering this river and seeing what I consider to be one of the wildest areas, most beautiful areas on earth. And if ever I felt like a John Wesley Powell or, or anything close, it was during this river trip. I expected a big, flat desert river, like you'd think out of Ethiopia, and nothing could be further from the truth. Um, in 1996, Microsoft pu uh, published one of the first online adventure travel magazines. I don't know if you remember Mungo Park. You may not. You probably didn't. It's been a long time now. But it was way ahead of its time, way before Yahoo, Google, or anybody were publishing any online um, uh, content. And we, we had a, an online, you know, Slate Magazine was launched at the same time. You might have, I might have read Slate Magazine, online magazine. Mungo Park was the adventure uh, portion of that. And this was the very first issue of Mungo Park Magazine, published by Microsoft, MSN, MSNBC, back in 96. And they gave us the money along with Turner. We did the first descent of the Takaze River from its source all the way into Sudan. And this is the group. This is what the river looks like from one of the outcrops. It's truly one of the most spectacular rivers in Africa. Not a single village or person inhabit the entire shoreline, an area of 600 kilometers in a country of eight, 80 million people. It's f there are no tsetse flies. There are no tsetse flies at all on the Takaze River. There are virtually no mosquitoes, no malaria in the Takaze River. Why no one inhabits this river, I will never know. I just will never know. It's just an unbelievable place. And as you can see, it's just spectacular, the scenery on it. We did the first ascent. Um, this is the trek into the put-in was through villages like this. Villages, Amhar villages in the Ethiopian highlands stretch as far as the eye can see. There's no sign of outside influence. They're all grass. This is a huge village, actually. We would, there's our kayaks, some of our dry bags, and our rafts. They're carrying our rafts. It took us three days to get to the put-in from the nearest dirt road. We walked in, we inflated our boats, and we took off. And we had no idea where we were going. We did have some old topo maps, but they had very little detail on them, especially of rapids and or the river. But it soon became uh, evident that the river was going to be more challenged than we thought. First night camp, although there's no villages, there are local militias. Now, since this is another typical area in Ethiopia that really has no central government presence, the local militias control a lot of the riverside. And so they were, they'd be up on the top of the cliffs or something, and someone would run back to one of the villages 10, 15 miles away. And invariably, before we even had a fire built at our camp, the local militia would show up. And they'd, first of all, want to know who we are and what we're doing. And we'd tell them what we're doing, and they would say, we're crazy. There's no way you can go down this river. It's too dangerous. And this, as happens uh, like a lot in Africa, Africans only know their area of the river, you know, maybe a mile on either side or two miles on either side. 
and that's pretty much their limit of their, of their uh, extent, their experience in the area. But this would be a typical scene. In the evening, we, um, well, this guy here, is, he's, not, he's not local. He's one of us. That's one of our photographers. Um, and in, invariably, we'd set up camp. A local militia would come by, and they'd want to know what we're doing. Because they had never, ever, ever seen outsiders in this river before. Never in the entire 500 to 600 kilometers, three-and-a-half-week expedition, had anybody ever seen a Westerner outsider in this area which, again, one of those areas, things that you just think is immense. But you can see the typical scenery was just fantastic. It would be uh, a combination of volcanic plateau, uh, sandstone canyon, and or metamorphic canyon. We went through the entire, we went the entire, ge I'm a geologist by training, so we went through the entire geological section all the way from the volcanic cover, the uh, Ethiopian plateau, through the, the uh, uh, Nile, Blue Nile Basin sediments, all the way into the Precambrian. And this is the Precambrian section right here standing on end right here, but it's just a fantastic scenery. This is what the canyon looks like through almost the 500 kilometers we went through it. It's immense spire, canyon, and mountain. No lights, no villages, no power lines, no roads. It's completely foreign. And what the scenery... Is, what is the source of water for this? This is the amazing thing. This is the mystery of the Takaze, I call it. Um, Ethiopia gets a lot of rainfall, up to 13, 14, 1500 millimeters a year, which is how many inches? 108, a lot of inches. And um, a lot of it drains during the rainy season. This is during the end of the rainy season, so we've got water here during the end of the rainy season. We try to hit it at the end of the rainy season so that it's, we, we make sure it's got water in it. But generally what happens is, uh, this, the, as far as I can figure as a geologist, is that the ground set, these volcanics get so saturated with water that they drain during the dry season. They drain through the side creeks because there's no way, rational way that during the seven, eight months of no rain that, that these rivers should flow. I'm from Colorado. I do the Colorado River a lot. And I know why the Colorado flows. It's got a huge snowpack of the Colorado Rockies feeding it all year. Well, this place has no snow. It has three or four months of rains, and that's it. And the Nile, and the Takaze, and the Omo flow year-round. It's just an amazing, amazing you know, thing to think about where all this water comes from. Um, this, this is our fleet. You can see the river, but this is typical of the canyon up here. It's just steep walls, very pretty. We had a pretty big fleet of boats because we were a filming crew. Um, the reason for the yellow boats was because it made look better on, on, on cameras. And it was a film called The Last Great River Ride by Turner Television in 1996 we made. Um, but this is the type of scenery on a daily basis. It's huge plateau with pinnacles. I mean, real reminiscent of the American Southwest 200 years ago. And it's really old. The northern, uh, well, the volcanics are anywhere in the millions of years, the volcanic cover of Ethiopia, up to almost modern in the Danakil Depression. And then as you drop into the Blue Nile Basin, it's Paleozoic in the Blue Nile Basin, and of course, Precambrian is a billion years old. So it, it, depending on where you're at in the geological section. Is the person fishing in the photograph? Yeah, that's Mike Speaks, my buddy Mike. So we didn't know how much fish, how many fish were in this river, right? So how many fish could be in this river, this dry river up here? He throws this piece of, I don't know, we had old chicken we bought off a local, I think. Threw a li liver in the river, and he not all, the, the liver didn't hit the water before he caught a catfish about four feet long. 
I've never seen so many catfish. And the only reason I think that there are so many crocodiles in the Takaze, and it's full of crocodiles, the only reason there's so many crocodiles in the Takaze is that there's so many fish in the Takaze. The Takaze is crawling with crocodiles. It was, they were unbelievable and very aggressive. Since they've never seen outsiders and there's nothing to fear, they would not hesitate to attack the rafts and the kayaks. We actually had two kayaks with cameras that day two into the expedition, we just had to take them out of the water and put them on the boats. It was just too scary having these kayaks in the water behind us and having 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15 foot crocs attacking these kayaks constantly. And when you're in an eight foot kayak, a 15 foot crocodile is really scary and way faster than you can paddle. So it was very common on the shores to have crocodile after crocodile after crocodile. More of the scenery of the Takaze, again, you will never, ever see it in these pictures. Anywhere. I've never seen them anywhere else, is the fact that it's just an immense canyon full of mesas and buttes, that all unpopulated. Any commercial projects planned for this river? You want to know if there's any commercial projects? The Chinese are one year away I don't, again, I don't want to get on China in terms of this. I really don't because I travel all the time. I've got tons of, I have projects in China. The Chinese are one, one year away from completing the second largest dam in the world on the Takaze River. It will dam the entire Takaze River, um, and the power is to be sold to Egypt. So um, the river's gone. Again, if you want to see this river trip, it's next year is the last year of the river trip. So this river will be dammed also. The, the, um, the interesting thing about this dam project is if you Google it and try to go to the Takaze Dam Project, you will find nothing on the internet. You'll find nothing in Ethiopia. You will find nothing in any newspaper. You will find nothing at all on the dam project. It's completely secret. It's completely held away from the press. And it's one of those projects that has no oversight, no transparency, or anything. It's just the large, second largest dam in the world being built in the middle of Ethiopia. And that's the, that's the main problem I have with a lot of the dam projects here, is it just, there's just no transparency to them. So, but again, you see the scenery, little pinnacles are miles away. Looks like something, you know, but mountain after mountain after mountain like this is just tremendous. And the river is just fantastic. It's not uncommon at the end of the rainy season to be coming down the river and all of a sudden, boom, you get these dark black clouds come in and it'll rain three inches on you overnight. Like today, hey, you know, like this nor'easter. <laughs> Good story, true story. I got a true, true story here. You don't mind if I go a little bit over my, my hour, do you? Um, so here we are this day. We're going down the river, and we said, man, this storm's coming. I pulled over. So we pulled over, and there was another boat with us, and the guy had the tent. Pull over, set up our camp. We didn't even get our tents pulled, and the storm blows in. You know, 100-mile-an-hour winds, dumping rain on us. The guy with the tent with the ammo box with all of our money and our passports and our airplane tickets didn't tie his tent down. Mm-hmm. It's almost dark. The tent takes off and blows in the middle of the river. Goes around the bend. It's a canyon, steep canyon. It's almost pitch dark. The river's full of crocodiles. So we think, what do you do? You just let the tent go. You can do nothing. Pitch black, you can't take a boat and go around the corner because we're all camped, set up. We don't know where we're going. Get up early the next morning, 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock in the morning, take one of the boats, take all the equipment off the boats, all the frame and everything, just make it a paddle boat until we can carry it back along the shore. 
go out in the river, go around the corner, and there's two little Amhara kids sitting on the shore, 100, 100 yards down, around the corner, sitting on the shore with the tent. <laughs> and inside, the ammo box, the sleeping bag, and everything that was in the tent. They hadn't even opened the tent. They saw the tent. They knew who we were because they had seen us. And they waited all night with the tent on the shore for us to come by to get the tent and the ammo box. They hadn't even opened it. All the money, tickets, and everything went in the ammo box. And those are the type of experiences we've had over and over again. It was just a wonderful experience. Can you imagine how sick we were? Our passports and everything was gone, and we found it the next day. And that was an experience. That was this day on the, on the, on the river. Uh, the sunsets, again, it's just a fantastic place. It's a beautiful area of the world. It's one of the great memories in life, being the first to navigate a river this size and a river that really no one knows about. Um, the Nile, um, we're going to end with the Nile. Uh, the Nile has a special place, um, I think, in my heart. Um, I was fortunate enough to be uh, uh, contacted by uh, McGillivray Freeman Films out of, of Laguna Beach, California, who made the Everest IMAX film. And um, they, they had heard, wanted to do a big, huge IMAX uh, film on the Nile, and they didn't really know how to do it. They didn't really have an experience. And, and someone had suggested, Richard Bangs, one of my friends, had suggested that they contact me and do a river trip and kind of do uh, the Nile River through the eyes of a river expedition. And has anybody here seen the mystery of the Nile? OK. <laughs> so that's how that started. They contacted me, and I was taking a group up Kilimanjaro. And um, I got a call on my cell phone, because cell phones work on Kilimanjaro now. <laughs> right? And it's in my backpack. It's ringing. I go, wow. So I took my cell phone out. And it's Richard. And go, hey, BB, what you doing? You know? And I said, well, I, you know, I'm, dude, I'm in Kilimanjaro. <laughs> he says, well, you've got to come to Ethiopia, because there's a film crew here. They want to do an IMAX film in the Nile. And the Nile was special to Richard because it was one of Richard's very first rivers he tried to run in the 70s. Uh, and his partner died on the Blue Nile. They tried to do the first full descent, and his, his partner died in Northern Gorge, and they gave up doing it. And so he, 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 he was eager kind of to get back and do it, but he didn't want to do it himself. So he recommended me. So I kind of ran these people up Kilimanjaro, you know, and ran them down. They're all friends. Actually, I kind of left them up top. I took them up, left them, and then came down the mountain and caught the first flight to Addis Ababa out of, out of uh, Kilimanjaro Airport. And I went up into the highlands. And I, could, and I talked to the director, and they kind of didn't know what to do. And I said, well, we should do the first full descent of the Blue Nile Nile. It's never been done. I know that sounds incredible. No one has ever run the full Nile. They've done pieces of it. And they thought that was a great idea. And um, they kind of hired me to lead the expedition. And what we did is we took um, uh, on no, October, November, September, October, November 13th, 2000, I'm starting to fade the memory. November 13th, 2003, 60 people, IMAX cameramen, grips, camera equipment. We all went to Africa, Ethiopia with 10,000 pounds of equipment. And for the next three and a half weeks, we filmed all of the great helicopter scenes you see in the IMAX film. We filmed the churches. We filmed all the great shots and the flyovers and all that. Then we took our equipment and we went to Egypt. And we filmed the Sphinx and the pyramids and all the Abu Simbel and all those great scenes. We filmed all that. And then everybody left. 
We never went to Sudan because what was happening in Sudan at the time, there was still a civil war in the South, um, and Americans were not allowed as a commercial venture into Sudan. So we had no insurance. They would, the insurance companies would not insure equipment. So they skipped to Sudan. And I said, well, how can you do that? The Nile, most of the Nile flows through Sudan. So everybody left. They went home. Gordon, and my, Gordon Brown, myself, my partner and I, with a couple other people, went back to Ethiopia with our two boats and our equipment, walked to the source of the Nile in Gishabai, and on two days before Christmas, 2003, with our backpacks and our cameras, we walked the first 72 kilometers, kayaked the next 200 kilometers down Lake Tana, and then rafted and kayaked the next 5,300 kilometers to the Mediterranean Ocean. We did it completely unsupported, never had an outside support, no helicopters, no food drops, no equipment drops, nothing. We had the IMAX camera with us, 400 pounds of equipment and two rafts, the film, and a box full of money. <laughs> we don't buy stuff along the shore, and that's it. We were completely self-supported, and that's how we made that film. And it was really unbelievable because it was way more difficult than, than it, even the film lets on because without a lot of outside support, we had to make sure if we had ever flipped a boat with the camera, we would have lost the camera and stuff like that because an IMAX camera is a million-dollar camera. So with that kind of background, I want to take you through. This is Tissisot Falls. We went through it before. And briefly, quickly, we start up here. In Lake. Actually, we start above Lake Tana. We started the Springs of Gishabai, 250 kilometers above Lake Tana. We went through Lake Tana over Tissisot Falls, along the Grand Canyon of the Nile, through Rosary's Reservoir, all the way to Khartoum, around the Espen of the Nile, all the way across Lake Nasser, all the way to the Mediterranean. We did 114 days. Again, another closer, this is just Ethiopia. We started at the Springs of Gishabai right here. We rafted through there, through Lake Tana, all the way through the Northern Gorge, where the Big Rapids are located, where Richard's partner died through the Grand Canyon of the Nile, the Black Gorge of the Nile, the Western Gorges of the Nile, got arrested in Serbabai, all the way through Rosaries, almost got arrested at Rosaries, all the way through to Khartoum. That's 2,013.7 kilometers, that distance right there. So that's kind of... Um, the group that did the entire expedition all the way in the Ethiopia portion was just, uh, at the end, were just myself and Gordon Brown did that entire portion, the cameraman, and then our locals. And these guys are the greatest people on the planet Earth. There are no more brave people in the world than these guys that went with us. And I'll tell you why in a, in a few in minutes. But they stayed with us. They never backed out. And it was a very scary situation considering that no Ethiopians have ever done a river trip, much less a big white water river trip. Uh, when we started the expedition, one of the really wild, interesting things, story, quick stories I want to tell is we, went to the, we got to the springs of Gishabai um, two days before Christmas in 2003. We got there 10 o'clock at night with our backpacks. It was really cold. We had our camera equipment with us. We had so much equipment that we couldn't even take our sleeping bags, food, or anything. We left all that behind. So we got there. We were freezing cold. We got to this place, we were hungry, but we just kind of, we wait for the morning for the monks to show up at the little church there at the source of the Blue Nile. So we kind of huddled together, it was really cold, kind of, it's 9,800 feet high. Kind of huddled there, and uh, we start trying to go to sleep, my head on a rock, you know, type thing, going to sleep. And all of a sudden, out of the bushes come these farmers, 
And if you've ever been to the Ethiopian highlands in a lot of the areas, 85% of people don't even, are so poor they don't even own shoes. You look at these guys, they're all barefoot. That's how poor it is in Ethiopia. Um, they brought some wood, and they built us a nice big fire and gave us some corn and a little bit of uh, injera um, that they had, local food. And they left. I woke up about 2 o'clock in the morning, and, and it, around the fire, uh, I expected the fire to be dead, but they had left around the fire with these two little girls. And they were, you know, six and seven years old, maybe. And they, they, they stayed there all night tending the fire. These Ethiopians had come, built this fire force. They'd left and gone back to their village. And they left the two little, their two little girls, two little daughters there with us. And they stayed awake all night keeping the fire burning for us so we wouldn't get cold. And that was one of the greatest experiences I'd ever had in my life. Because can you imagine in this era of fear and paranoia that we are involved with almost on a daily basis, allowing strangers to come into our villages, letting our little daughters, you know, like, be in a situation. It just was unheard of. And that set up the, the kind of the theme of our expedition that Gordon and I, everywhere we went, we would be completely unarmed. Although you saw we had a few guns on there. Most of that was just for the crocodiles. Um, and that we would be unarmed and we'd be completely at the mercy of the locals along the Nile. And it worked out to be really good in our advantage. This is the source of the Blue Nile. Um, it's a little pipe stuck in a, stuck in a little tiny handmade wall um, in a swamp in a spring called Gishabai at 9,000-something feet in Ethiopia. Um, it's holy. It's holy water. And it was through here that I filled up a, uh, an algae bottle of water, duct taped it, and then took that algae bottle with me all the way to the Mediterranean. Um, just a few feet from here, the Ethiopian highlands looks like this. It's lush green, really high, so it's green year-round almost. And this is the beginning of the Nile. It starts as a little stream like this. And as it get, goes down, it flows. It gets bigger and bigger. Now, the Nile in this area, there's a church called Zerabruk. And a lot of people don't realize that Ethiopia is predominantly a Christian country. Although it's surrounded by Islam, the actual highlands themselves are Orthodox Ethiopian Christianity. And it's, again, it's just an amazing place. Virtually no evidence of westernization, um, uh, tourism or anything. These were locals. It was happened to be church day when we were there, and it, this was not staged. They were actually reading their little Bibles and things. Just a few miles after Lake Tana, the river gets bigger. This is uh, Tissisat Falls. We want to run every inch of the Nile to make sure no one came a week after us. A German Nile expedition came the week after us and claimed to have run more of the river than we did. So we ran every inch of the river. This, this waterfall, if you can look here, there's actually someone rappelling. See, that's a person. We came to this falls. We either lowered the boats by rope or pushed the boats over, and then we rappelled off the waterfall down into the boats and took off down the river. So we made sure to run every inch of the river. We only portaged three rapids, one waterfall and three class six rapids for all we portaged. Um, this is a picture of Gordon. We actually strapped a small IMAX cam on the front of his kayak as we were lowering in, and he lowered himself over the falls. Remember the film, him going down the falls? Yeah, this is a picture of Gordon in the kayak lowering himself down the falls. And you can see the magnificent, how magnificent the falls are. Just a few miles down from Tissisat, the river gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And again, another place virtually no one knows about is a place called the Grand Canyon of the Nile. It's the same size as the Grand Canyon of the United States, 5,000 feet deep, 26 miles wide. 
huge, incredibly beautiful area of the world. And it's, this is what it looks like for day upon day upon day. This is the central gorge of the Blue Nile, the Grand Canyon of the Nile. It's huge cliffs, magnificent waterfalls, and rapids. Now, we ran this rapid. It's a class 5-plus rapid. It's called Arafami Falls. And it's one of the first major rapids. But you can see how big the rapids are on this part of the river. Um, this is the first descent coming down one of the rapids. We would generally come to the edge of the rapids, scout it out, set the camera up below it, and then go back and run it. Again, we had no outside support, so it took a while to run the rapids because we'd have to film ourselves going down. And one of the most difficult parts of the expedition was trying to convince these guys how to turn on and off the IMAX camera. Now, the IMAX camera typically, the IMAX camera typically weighs about 100 pounds. It has a three-minute load of 70-millimeter film, and one load is three to four thousand dollars. We only had 20 rolls of film. So you can imagine how careful we were with it. Now, this is one of the uh, rapids. The you know, Blue Nile's it's a volcanic plateau. It's characterized by lots of these five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten-foot vertical drops, or vertical waterfalls. And here the guys are in the front, or Ethiopians at the front. Mike's going over about a ten-foot drop in a 16-foot raft. And the amazing thing you look at here is these guys don't like what's happening, especially the guy in the back. And the reason being is he can't swim. In fact, none of these guys can swim. Not a single Ethiopian we had on this trip could swim. So rather than get a cook that couldn't swim, that could swim, we'd rather, uh, rather than get a cook that could swim and couldn't cook, we'd rather get a cook that couldn't swim but could cook. So the guy in the back is Johnny Walker. He was our cook. Um, the reason we named him Johnny Walker is for several reasons. His name is Johnny, Johannes. And um, after the first flip where he almost drowned, he decided to walk every rapid after that. <laughs> and he also had a couple bottles of Johnny Walker. That was his cho drink of choice. So it was very, very tough because we did have a few big bad flips and a few of the Ethiopians lost their nerve there. Um, this is going towards Sudan. We'd already, I have to skip forward about 700 kilometers and about 500 rapids here. But this is typical of the rapids going through on a daily basis, a small class two rapid, class three. Um, you can't see the hole right here. There's a huge hole right here that we're going into. But what we would do is we would go during the day. We, every day we'd run 30 to 40 of these rapids, try to film what we could, and then name them. Got, got so many rapids that you just start numbering them, Black Gorge 1, Black Gorge 2. And I think you'll see them on my maps. There's a couple of my maps in the Firestone display. It shows the, shows the rapids that we named. But this is what we would do. We'd just name the rapids and keep going. The, the Nile, like a lot of the other rivers, a lot of hippo. We had a hippo attack, almost took out one of the boats. A lot of crocodiles. There's more crocodiles on the Nile. Well, I've said that about four rivers now, haven't I? <laughs> There's a lot of crocodiles on the Nile. Um, the main thing, thing about the crocodiles here, they've never seen another boat either. There have never been any boats down this river. So we would come by and there'd be this 14-foot this crocodile, and he'd come in the water, jump in the water, and go off in one of these 16-foot yellow rafts. And he'd get about 10 feet from the raft and stop and go, wow, yeah, that's a pretty big raft. So he'd kind of stop or turn around and go back. Then what would happen is he'd look behind us. And behind us was Gordon in his kayak. And Gordon was attacked by more crocodiles than I can imagine. And it finally got to be the point where I just told him, I said, you just have to put the kayak in the raft. I, I, I'm getting tired you know, of having these guys you know, loading rounds into their AK-47s during the day, you know, waiting for you to be attacked by a crocodile. So 
so we put the we put the kayak in the in the raft, and most trip we did with the kayak towards the bottom, uh, the kayak in the raft, just out of safety. But he got attacked more than once by a crocodile going after him. How do you protect yourself at um, what we do at night is we turn the boat sideways, and we have paraffin lanterns. And we put paraffin lanterns around the camp, and just the light from those paraffin lanterns would keep the crocs. And shift of bandits. There are bandits in the area. And we, we're, we were approached by bandits a bunch of times. In fact, we got shot at. Yeah, I left it out of here, but the time we got shot at, it was the same way. Um, they would shoot at us from the shore. And so um, we, we would set up lanterns, and just the boat sideways keep most of the Crocs and hippos out of camp. So, um, the, one of the last rapids, Island Rapid, but, uh, we ran. Uh, the, the mountains are Sudan, so we're, we're approaching Sudan now. And once you leave Ethiopia, you leave all the mountains, the highlands of Africa, all the big rapids, the highlands. And once you enter Sudan, then you get into the lower Nile. Now, the lower Nile is just spectacular. Virtually no one I've ever spoken to has ever seen or been on the lower Nile in the Sudan, mainly because it's been off limits for so many years. But it's just one of the most spectacular rivers in the world. It's a big, huge, wide river. Um, it's now got the confluence of the white and the blue Nile. It's huge granite boulders. Here's the central um, Nubian granite uplift right here. Jebels in the background, Sahara Desert. It's just spectacular. And we did almost 2,000 kilometers of stuff like this. And it's just an amazing, an amazing experience. Um, here's Khartoum. Uh, we have the Blue Nile comes in here. Here's the White Nile, two arms of the White Nile, the Blue Nile. Here's a new building, uh, uh, Moar Markadafi's building for himself. And um, you can see our two little boats. And here we are uh, at the confluence of the White Nile and the Blue Nile. At this point in time, we had just run the first full descent of Blue Nile. It was 2,013.7 kilometers we had run to get to this point. And so we had done the first full descent of the Blue Nile, and now we're entering the main arm of the Nile. And so from here on out, uh, we're on the Nile, not the Blue Nile. But the Nile is just amazing. Um, there's Nubian ruins, Nubian, uh, there's old forts built by the British and the Turks and the Egyptians along the shore. All of them are abandoned. No, there are no footprints going to them. There's no tourists. Um, these are the pyramids of Meroe built by the, uh, the black pharaohs, a um, couple thousand years old. It's just fantastic, and I dare anybody to see a footprint anywhere in the sand. We passed it through 2,000 miles of Sudan, saw dozens and dozens of old, beautiful, perfectly preserved 1,000, 2,000-year-old forts on the rocks and the islands. We saw villages. We saw pyramids. And never once did we see a single footprint of the sand or another tourist the entire expedition. Not until we entered Egypt below um, Aswan Haidam, Aswan Egypt, did we see a single tourist. And that's how fantastic this part of the river was. Um, once we hit Aswan, this looks more familiar. We passed the Lake Nasser. We went through Aswan, and we started seeing feluccas. Then we started seeing our first tourists in Egypt. Um, they'll stop at Aswan. They'll go no further, the tourists. And then from here on out, we were in the Egyptian Nile. Um, there are still, I'll back up just a bit, there's still the only wildlife left in this area. There's no more hippos or crocs. Um, there's just camels. But there's a lot of them. And so it's not uncommon to be at the shore and have the, have the local camel herders bring their camels down to water. Um, after 5,000 kilometers, we start approaching the outskirts of Cairo. 
And immediately it, it brings back the song my mother sang. Remember the uh, um, See the Pyramids Along the Nile? Remember that? See the Pyramids Along the Nile. I, I was singing that when this, when this came in because my mother used to sing that when I was a little kid. <laughs> and remember Jeanette McDonald or uh, Joe, Joe Stafford? I guess they all sang it. My mother sang that. And so when I first finally saw the pyramids along the Nile, I was almost emotional because we come all this way down the Nile River. We're about 100, 101, 102 days into the expedition here. We finally saw the pyramids in Egypt. And we realized that we were getting close to the end of the trip. We had gone so many miles, and we hadn't missed anything. We're now finally into, the, into, the, uh, into, um, into Cairo, into the pyramids, into the Sphinx. Um, Cairo was a, uh, 20 million people, uh, t- who knows, 20-something million people. And who would have thought that I would see a picture like this having put in at the Little Springs of Gishabai 114 days, 108 days, 109 days earlier. It's just amazing the difference between the two locations. But after 114 days, 5,300 kilometers, um, we went ahead and drifted all the way into the Mediterranean, the blue waters of the Mediterranean, actually into the surf to make sure there was no more river left. Then we turned around and came back, and then we had our first really good cold beer in a lot of months. <laughs> and so after that, then, uh, we, had been, we were first group ever then to go ahead and navigate the first full length of the uh, Blue Nile and Nile. And again, you can't ever pass up an, a, river ex, uh, a river expedition in Africa without seeing the sunsets. This is a sunset over Rosari's Reservoir in Sudan. Um, very typical. Um, you'd have geese, Egyptian geese flying, and just a fantastic sunset at night. And one last sunset over Lake Nasser. Um, every night we saw this. We would just sit there. We'd build a fire, cook our you know, lettuce soup and pasta or a cup of coffee, and we'd see the sunset. Think about a cold beer. <laughs> Ran out of gin and tonic a long time ago. And uh, this is what we'd see every single night. And so it was quite, quite an incredible experience. And so I'd like to, you know, end the, and just end it by saying that, you know, these are just four rivers. I've done other rivers. And um, it's just been an incredible experience. Africa to me is there's no place in the world like Africa. And every time I read, you know, I, I love African history. And I've got chances to go a lot of other places. Everest, got a K2 expedition coming up. I get a chance to go a lot of places. But I'll always go back to Africa. I'll always go back to the rivers in Africa. And, um, and there's a reason, because it's just wild and adventurous and beautiful and, and a lot of fun. And uh, my biggest regret is I wasn't born 100 years ago <laughs> to be able to see them. But um, I invite everybody to go to the uh, Firestone Museum. Yes. Is there any and, questions? Uh, Any questions? Go over. Uh, you've shown us many scary things. Yeah. What scared you the most? You know, I think the thing that scared me the most, as a, I'm not worried about myself. I mean, it, you just deal with it. You know, you, and it's like anything else, like playing golf or skiing or or whatever. You get, you do it, you get better. It was, it was having other people being responsible for other people. That worries me, obviously more than anything. When I had, was in the Northern Gorge, and we're going after rapid, after rapid, Northern Gorge of the Blue Nile, I had these Ethiopians with me that couldn't swim, and I was going over rapid, 
class four rapid, class five, class five, class five, class five, one right after the other, after the other, after the other. And if any boat, anything happened at any time, we'd flipped a boat there. Forget the IMAX camera. These guys probably would have drowned because after a class five rapid, there was another class five rapid, you know, 100 feet away. And that scared me the most. It was no time in my entire life I'd been more stressed during that four or five days that I had these guys' lives in my hands knowing that they were right there. You know, and so I was, when, when we passed the last rapid, uh, and I, that last rapid I knew of, and the river kind of slowed out in front of us, and I could breathe, and the canyon kind of died, I breathed a sigh of relief that it was, we did it. Because I knew after that it was just a matter of dealing with ship done, you know, bandits and hippos and crocs and things like that. <laughs> you know, I didn't have to deal with the white one. So that was probably the worst episode of my life. Why did you get arrested? <laughs> well, it was two times I got arrested, actually. The first time was in the southern Ethiopia, the Benishangul Gumus uh, peoples. Um, Ethiopia, after the Civil War, they've kind of broken up into a federated country. Um, I think it's going to cause problems because what happened is before Haile Selassie kind of controlled the country, after he was overthrown and the communist Derg, uh, Mengistu was overthrown there, they've decided they want to kind of let the tribes do their own thing. And each tribe's kind of grabbing control of its territory. And these people think now they own the Nile, this tribe. And so we came through there, and they arrested us. And I said, well, I got a letter from the government. I got a letter from the president. I got a letter from We don't care about letters. And so they took our guns away and marched us 25 miles into the highlands. And we're just going to keep us there. Fortunately, I had a satellite phone, and they didn't know what that was. They'd never seen one. And while we were walking through the jungle, I called up, you know, Richard Bangs, my buddy. And he called the... Uh, Army in Ethiopia and the uh, Army went ahead and they had a shortwave radio there. They called them in and threatened to come in and, you know, they threatened all kinds of things. They finally let us go after a few days. <laughs> the other time was crossing Lake Nasser. The Egyptians wouldn't let us come across Lake Nasser because they'd heard two Americans, the spies in Wadi Halfa, heard that two Americans were coming down with two boats, boats full of electronic and film equipment. And Egypt is extremely paranoid about the Aswan High Dam because um, there, it, if you take out the Aswan High Dam, there's 74 million people living downstream of the Aswan High Dam. They're all living on the river now since they built the dam because it no longer floods. If they took out the Aswan High Dam, you'd kill a lot of people. And so they'd heard that these spies with boats and electronic equipment and who knows were coming down the river, and so they were waiting for us. So when we crossed the border, we got, a, we got like four big Navy boat patrol boats came and surrounded us. <laughs> Of course, I tried to go back to, this is a great story. It's in the book, by the way. I tried to go back to Sudan because I was like 10 feet into Egypt. And I was trying to turn around and go back to Sudan. I had a 15-horsepower motor on these two boats, you know, trying to get back, you know. <laughs> and they caught me before I got back. <laughs> so they took us into custody and kept us for a couple days. <laughs> Yeah. And, and now, so now the building lots more debt, more and bigger dams. Yeah. What? Yeah, I'm really familiar with the dam issue. You know, I've been big in uh, international dams network, and you know, blah blah blah. Um, you know, look, I'm that's I'm a realist. I'm a geophysicist. I am an oil and gas geophysicist. Okay, I do oil and gas exploration. I'm not anti-growth, anti-person, anti-human. I'm not. That said, 
I'm probably the biggest thorn in the side of oil and gas companies on the planet because I believe that we all have responsibilities to act responsibly. We need oil and gas. I guarantee you all of us got here tonight in our vehicles, unless you guys, guys walked in the rain from, you know, like next door. That said, we have to look. Now, the dam question is particularly painful for me because I do river. I love river expeditions. Now, the bi I thought personally that the area of big dams was over. It's definitely over in this country, okay? What's happened is now is the dam builders in this country and different countries are moved to Africa. And there was a period of time during the 80s where the big dam projects, the World Bank was truly changing its attitude towards the big dam. Because in the 80s, uh, 70s and 80s, to get a dam built anywhere in Africa, you almost had to have uh, funding from the World Bank, or it didn't happen. Well, that's changed now, because with the advent of, of, of a richer India, I, again, I use China, India, and other countries, and especially the Middle East, countries in Africa and around the world are much more capable now of obtaining funds from entities other than the Western, the Northern Hemisphere, Western nations, and the World Bank to be able to build these large-scale projects, not just dams. There's other huge projects they're building, too. And what's happening is there's a, a, an insane rush in the world now, Chile, Argentina, all the African countries, to take every available source of, of power generation and to develop it. What I didn't say on the Nile, I forgot to say on the Nile, is uh, that big, beautiful section of river you saw there, I told you, got to go see that, because that will be gone in 2008. Um, they are building, you know who, is building the Moroi Fourth Cataract Dam on the Nile. They're displacing 50,000 more Nubians will be moved, and they will dam almost 300 kilometers more of the Nile. And that... And I don't know where they're going to sell all this power. Now, they're going to keep competing with Ethiopia. They're planning on selling the power to Egypt. Um, in addition, Ethiopia has planned 26 dams on the Nile. And they're planning the 26 dams, they think, will produce 26,000 megawatts of power, which I don't even know if Africa uses 26,000 megawatts of power. That's a lot of power. And that's just the beginning. And so what's happening is in the... Uh, because of the fact that there are now other sources of funding for these huge mega projects, there is no longer the need for the Western world, the Northern Hemisphere, you know, World Bank. There's no, more, there's no more controls over the transparency question is my biggest problem. No one's controlling this anymore. So what's happening, for example, are people are going into Mozambique, and they're saying, we want to build this dam, this huge dam. Well, no one... No one needs, there's no assessments, no impact statement, there's nothing. They simply go to the president, they say, we'd like to build a dam. We have, we're going to sell the power to South Africa. We'll fund it, we'll build it, and we'll manage it. All you have to do is give us the permission. He gives us permission, and it gets built. So they move five, six, seven, eight, ten thousand, fifty thousand people out of the way. It doesn't matter, because the government's now going to get 30, 40, 50 million a year doing it. So that's... That's the, the, what's happening. And it's, it's at a break. I'm, just, I'm shocked at how many dam projects are going on, major projects. Smelters, the biggest thing now are, are countries that are no longer allowed to smelt. Australia, the United States, people like that. We're now going into these countries, importing the bauxite, shipping the bauxite in, building the dam, smelting the aluminum, and then bringing the aluminum back. Why? We have no 
buddy looking over our shoulder for the smelting, the dam project, the smelting project, anything. All we do is do it, do it offshore. That's kind of my, and I don't want to stand on a soapbox, but that's my biggest thing. And I'm an oil and gas guy. I can't do that anywhere in oil and gas. I mean, I guess I get my, I'm like this when it comes to drilling oil well. And I just think it's unfair. I think there needs to be more oversight over the development and the building of large dams. Have any of you or your members all on these river rocks developed in malaria or typhoid or shigella? And if so, what did you do when you were? Yeah. I've had malaria eight times. Um, so I know. I feel like I just had it a couple months ago on the Elmo. Um, malaria is a real tough one because we do have drugs that you take on a daily basis or a weekly basis that will take care of it. The problem is when you're over there so long that those drugs are just brutal on you, especially the older ones, larium and stuff like that. So uh, we, a lot of us of the group I took down, the OMO, there were 11 of us, uh, seven of us caught malaria. It's a malaria-resistant area, malarium drug-resistant malaria. So what's happened is we just, we just catch it. Um, I've had schistosomiasis. Um, and a few other. I haven't had um, typhoid. No, I had hepatitis B. I caught hepatitis B over there. So other than that, um, it's been fairly fairly healthy. So you talked about the adventures of yeah. rafting, but how much still water paddling are you doing on the Nile? Yeah, we did about, of the Nile, we did, you know, we had two boats with about 1,000 pounds of equipment. So we had... Uh, down when it got really slow down the bottom, we had a small 15-horsepower motor that we pushed the boats along with. Obviously, across Lake Nasser, 400 miles long, we're not about to row 1,000 pounds of raft across Lake Nasser. I think I'd still be there rowing. Um, so we used the motor of that. But anytime there was rapids, fast water, anything like that, we just pull it in, and, and we, would, we would run the river. The, the entire upper stretch was completely run without motors. Sir? Two-part question. Yeah. A good question. You want to hire one from geology, being a geophysicist? Yeah. Well, first of all, I'm still a geophysicist. Um, I, I got a degree in geophysics geology from Northern Arizona University. My degrees are from there. And I went into uh, Denver. I started working um, domestic and international oil and gas. Um, I just, just finished a project in Siberia. So I'm still working oil and gas. The reason I do is I like staying in the business, um, business world. I mean, I enjoy international um, energy business. I enjoy, um, I've got a project right now I'm dealing with Somaliland government, northern Somalia. They're, I think they're going to be recognized by the United Nations in a few years here. Um, they're going to break that country up into three countries, Somalia and Ethiopia. So I enjoy that. And it also kind of balances me out. I don't ever, although you know, we kind of, I'm kind of beating on big dams here, I don't ever want to come in my own mind, come across as being out of touch with the reality of, of the world reality of business and the need for power and stuff. So I like that. Um, how, I got into, how I got into this is there's not a big jump between doing international oil and gas exploration projects in all these wild areas. Because I'm on the front end of exploration. I go out where there's you know, no wells, drills, or anything. I just go out there in the middle of nowhere and start kind of looking for oil and gas and doing expeditions. So the two kind of blended. I, I love rafting. I did that when I was doing the Grand Canyon in northern Arizona. I did that quite often. And mountaineering. And now what I did is every time I would go do a big project, I would also look for rivers 
to run in mountains, and I'd just go do a big oil and gas project, and I'd stay and run a couple of rivers, and that's kind of how I've done it. Although my river running now takes about, mountains and rivers take about 70% of my time. The rest of the time I, I do oil and gas. They used they used it was a Dutch or Swedish. I happened to run into an engineer at Addis Ababa International Airport, Bowling International Airport. We were just talking, and he asked me what I was doing. I said I was over there. I was running the Elm. I said oh, I just got back from the Takaze. I said well, oh, I run the Takaze. He, he was like shocked that someone knew who the, what the Takaze was, and he had been, he he came over there um, to. Uh, as a consultant, the Ital like I think the Italians are supplying the turbines. Well, he came over as a consultant to be able to see how big a turbines they needed, and he was he told me about a lot of that. In addition, you know, it's it's they're building it's a huge project. So you can meet some of the people, local peoples that are running it too. You run into that, and that's pretty much how I've learned. And I have friends in Ethiopia that have told me a lot of the information. But if you go there try to get information of where it is, how it is, you just won't find it. Yeah, that's far enough upstream. That's at the Great Headwaters. Lalabella is uh, 14th century. Uh, it's uh, a city where they've carved 12 churches into the basalt bedrock. And it's just magnetic. Again, one of the, it's a UNESCO World Heritage Site. It's one of the wonders of the world, I think. And that's where we started. The Takaze River actually starts in Lalibella, right in Lalibella. So that's where you start your expedition, and then you, you go down. And that will survive, because that's so far upriver. That'll, that'll survive. No, no. I can honestly say no. Um, this, the reason being is um, there's a lot of people in Ethiopia. And when you look at 70 million people moving 10,000, 15,000 people, isn't a big deal. Um, in, 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 in terms of the Morowi Dam, what's the Morowi Fourth Cataract Dam in Sudan, I think the thing that's most disturbing there is I thought we had learned when we built the Aswan High Dam, when we moved 100,000 Nubians, and it's considered to be one of the big human rights fiascos in, in, in the history of dam building. They moved these Nubians up into the Gish al uh, drainage on the, top, on the uh, Adbara River, and they promised them farmland, and that's 100,000. They promised them villages, and of course, they moved these people up there, and they don't give them anything. They built a little dam that was silted in after a few years, and they're all gone. It's abandoned, and they're living in Cairo. Yeah, it's the same thing. They've got 50,000 Nubians. And if you've been along the Nile, if you've seen the Nile picture, it's desert. It's rock, sand, and jebel. And only right on the shore, for either feet or meters, is there green mud and silt and sand. It's the place to build. And if you talk about 50,000 Nubians, you realize that's a huge section of the Nile, hundreds of kilometers. And if you take people away from these beloved, their beloved date palms, is what we say, off the Nile, well, where do you put them? 
the entire Nile in Sudan and Egypt, anywhere that can be farmed is farmed. There's no place to go. So they're taking 50,000 people. They're moving them. They're building them new concrete block houses in the middle of the desert. I, you might as well just give them the money and send them to Cairo or send them to Khartoum. You make it easy on yourself. That's, that's how they're mitigating it. In their minds, they're mitigating it, but it just won't work. It hasn't worked before, and it just won't work now. Oh, oh, the go, the, the Gibe, the Gilgal Gibe. Yeah. Villages, yeah. And those people will be no more. No, there'll be no more. Yeah. They just move them. See, I don't know. The, the, the thing about Africa is, you know, we can talk. Remember, John, we've talked about this. Is Africa really is an enigma because every time I think I really know what's kind of happened in Africa, I've been there a lot of years. I kind of figure I don't know what's happening in Africa because you're always surprised. Um, the thing about Africa is, people, you hear. Hmm, do you remember the uh, comedian? Remember the big droughts in Ethiopia when everybody remember the aid concert, live aid concert when the lowland Ethiopians there was big starvation. It was back in the eighties, maybe eighty four, eighty five, and there were a bunch of comedians came on. I remember this vividly. Comedians say, "Well, you know, it's a desert. These people live in a desert." Yeah, remember? Yeah. Well, if it's a desert, move. And my, that sounds funny, but the question is, move where? You don't realize that Africa. There's people living in Africa, and there are people live everywhere in Africa. And there is no such thing as an inch of ground in Africa that is not as owned, grazed, controlled, or lived on by a tribe. So when you take 50,000 people, you have to move them somewhere. And short of the middle Sahara Desert, where it's all sand, there's no place you can move these people. So you can't take 5,000 people and move them to another village. They just won't accept them. So the only place to move these people is out in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the middle of sand. And that's the problem with Africa. That's why you can't have a Somalis or Ethiopians or Eritreans or whatever in periods of big drought having mass migrations of people into other areas because those other areas are currently occupied by other people. Darfur is an example. The big question is, why don't you just move people out of Darfur? That's because there's no place to move. There's other villages, there's other tribes, there's other ethnic groups. And that's the situation in Africa today. And that's why these migrations of people are very, very difficult. And that's, you know, that's, that's what's going to happen to these people. There's just no place for them to go. Well, they can go places. They can go to the slums. They can go to Omdurman. They can go to the slums of Khartoum or Cairo. You know, give them some dollars and send them there. So. And I feel sorry. I've, I've done a lot. You know, I've been contacted a lot by people on this Fourth Cataract Moroi project about that because there's no transparency in that either. Zero transparency. It's just they're just building it. You know, well, who's building it? Well, I don't know. You know, where are they getting the turbines from? Who cares? Who knows? They don't know. There's just no nobody's telling them what's going on. These are big projects. These are not small projects. So, We're given all the different factors, what is the right scale? Well, you know, I look at Ethiopia. Let's use Ethiopia for a good example. Um, they can build all the dams they want to. There's 70 million people in Ethiopia. 60 million of them live by small-scale farming. Um, you can build all the big dams in Ethiopia you want to. You will help zero of those farmers. Why? Because the rivers are in these big, low gorges. 
impossible for people. No one lives there. They live in the highlands. They have small tracts of land. All they're going to do is they're going to generate a little bit of electricity, sell the electricity after these dams get paid out. They've got to pay the dams out first. Dams aren't free. They do cost money. And they do have to pay them back at very high interest rates. I think these small dam projects where you dam the side tributaries way up in the highlands, you build really small projects. You only need water for about four months a year, five months a year. Then you can get the crops growing, get things going, then you let them dry out. If they can build small dam projects further up, small hydropower further up, just like we've done in Nepal. Nepal is a good example of that. Very few large dam projects in Nepal. I spent a lot of time there. We've built, they've built small, the Norwegians, the Europeans have built small dam projects up in the side tributaries. Small kilowatts megawatt? No, small, big, smaller megawatt. I'm talking village size, two village size, which are just you know, tens and hundreds of kilowatts. And then what you do is you go ahead and build these smaller dam projects. They're very cheap. They're easy to build. They're easy to repair. They're easy to maintain. And you can build the infrastructure to be able to take care of them. Small. Environmental impact. Vi virtually no environmental impact, yeah. Yeah, they're, very, they're much smaller. And so I think that's, and you help the farmers themselves because then the farmers themselves can utilize the water. There's no farmers. No one lives in these valleys anyway. They're certainly not going to live in these valleys once they build these big dams because with the dams are going to come, you know, intense mosquito infestations and malaria, schisto. I mean, if you want schisto, go to, go to Lake Nasser. It's just full of schistosomiasis. So. Okay, we could have a whole conversation on dams. All it's not going away is going with us down <laughs> to go. the library. All of you can continue your conversation with them there, and we'll see you in a few minutes. Right there. Thanks.